Welcome back to America's Talking. My guest is Matt Briney. Matt is the Vice President of Media and Communications at George Washington's Mount Vernon. Starting out with the most basic question possible, but I feel like it may be necessary given the state of American civics knowledge. What is Mount Vernon's place in our country's history? Mount Vernon is uh, George Washington's home in Virginia. Um, it is the home of our nation's first president, the commander in chief of the American Revolution. <clears throat> and uh, probably most importantly, it, it's one of the uh, historic pr- uh, first earliest uh, American historic preservation sites. And it serves as a place where uh, a pilgrimage where people Americans can learn more about George Washington and the founding era. A lot of people know a lot of things about George Washington. A lot of people know a lot of myths about George Washington. And, uh, you know, they may know him as the man on the dollar bill or the uh, or a, a man in a marble statue in a halls of government. Um, but that doesn't really get you allow you to get to understand the man himself and his in interests, his pursuits. Um, and so we say that Mount Vernon is really an autobiography. It's a place where you can learn that, you know, he was an excellent horseman. He was uh, a great dancer. He enjoyed experimenting with different agricultural technologies and 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 kind of advancing, uh, you know, where our nation was going. There are so many examples of extraordinary moments and acts of leadership throughout George Washington's life. I'm wondering if you could just speak to a couple that spring to mind for you and kind of what we can learn about great leadership from Washington. Yeah, well, I think there's kind of two really core elements to that uh, that are defined in in the same act, uh, the same types of acts that uh, that Washington does. And, and really, I think uh, perhaps his greatest is you know the the civilian led uh you know um, military right uh, the fact that he resigns his commission in annapolis after the war he gives up power how, think about how many other countries in the world how many other revolutions and that did not happen right you, you're you're dealing with the strongmen that uh, that control a country with military rule and and, uh, and in a lot of ways oppress you know certain sects or entire populations of of their people uh, that is a legacy that is is, uh, I think, a leadership trait that many, many can find uh, inspiration from, too. That then echoes itself in Washington's second resignment from power, uh, you know, after giving up two terms and running for president. You know, certainly, I think the the nation was almost ready to allow Washington to become king. He was so incredibly popular, uh, it, it won by an, an unanimous vote uh uh, his first election uh, had a little struggle on the second term, but uh, but still uh, uh, succeeded. And uh, you know, I, I think that the nation could have easily turned into a monarchy, but uh, but Washington sets that precedent. You know that we will resign after two terms, return the the government's leadership back to the people. If anyone is having a bad day, perhaps they feel disliked by colleagues. You can take some solace in the fact that George Washington had a pretty close re-election campaign. Hopefully that can help. Some exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, the politics were strong by the by his second term. And, uh, you know, Jefferson and uh, Hamilton, especially some of Jefferson's backhand dealings, you know, in the press uh, to, to discredit Washington, uh, some some more controversial decisions that were being made. Uh, it's not necessarily the formation of the government as it was in the first term. It's uh, it's now how do we deal with foreign uh, foreign issues and uh, and diplomacy and things that uh, are a lot more challenging to deal with. But, uh, you know, I think Washington was done by the end of it. But uh, 
But what's really remarkable is, I think, the fact that, uh, you know, his views on uh, which are expressed in the farewell address to the country and particularly with uh, political parties and the spirit of party. I think that that's uh, perhaps one of his greatest warning is, uh, you know, that that uh, putting party above the, the 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 ideas of the country uh, could be dangerous. And, and we certainly have seen where that has come into play throughout our history. And so it's a farewell address that we always encourage people to read the farewell, read the farewell address. It's not a long document, but it's uh, it often has a lot of relevancy in, in history throughout the, throughout the years. Misconceptions or myths about Washington. And of course, slavery is the one that comes up, I think, just given modern political discussion. Often left out of that conversation is his deep struggle and reckoning with slavery mm-hmm. sort of throughout his life and the fact that uh, in his will gave up all the slaves that were under his ownership. But I'm wondering if you could sort of expound on that. Where do you think perhaps critics of that uh, get it wrong or, or what are people's misconceptions about his legacy in that regard? Yeah, well, it, it, Washington grows up in a time of uh, where slavery is a part of normal life. You know, he inherits his first uh, in, enslaved people at the age of uh, of eleven, and uh, and and he, you know, upon his father's death, and and you know, it's a system where the economies are based around it. Um, but as Washington is going through the Revolutionary War, as he's having discussions with people like the Marquis de Lafayette, um, you know the and they're having the early discussions on, uh, you know, the, the the freedom and rights of man, right? I mean, I, I think that that's where things start to become challenging for Washington. And you know, he's 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 a, he understands the irony of it, but at the same time, he's got a very young republic, you know, uh, and slavery, and especially at the at the Constitutional Convention, is a majorly contested issue, and it has the ability to tear the country apart, especially the New Union, and it does, you know, a hundred years later, it, it, it that that's the reason why we have the Civil War, right? And so I think that this is something where, um, you know, there, there's there's a lot that goes on his mind. He does take uh, initiatives. Uh, he has he writes per private thoughts, um, letters with other individuals like the Marquis de Lafayette, where he's trying to develop systems where by which you know he can uh, free those enslaved, allow them to work uh, on the farms that that he owns as essentially uh, tenant farmers. Um, but ultimately, you know, uh, it's it's the, the the economics just are not there. Um, Washington's also seen the slavery, the, the economics of slavery is not being sustainable either, right? Um, uh, you know, he's he's seen mechanism in crops he, as a potential uh, in improvements. It's his distillery and grist mill, uh, his. Uh, his 16-sided barn or agricultural inventions where it eliminates some of the labor to this, resigns from uh, the idea of buying and selling people. He also refuses to split up families that uh, that are enslaved and, and together, uh, and then makes that final act uh, where he uh, frees the slaves that he has in control of his will. Now, that's less than half of the population here at Mount Vernon because a lot of the population at Mount Vernon uh, comes from the Custis estate, and the they are what they've called a dower slave. And, and so they are part of the estate. They go on to the heirs. 
letters of, of Martha Washington from her first husband. And so he has no actual control over those individuals. There are ways that Washington is, uh, is wanting slavery to end, but then there's also ways in which he keeps the institution going too. So it's, it's a very complex uh, part of his life, but it's a, an issue that he struggles with. We're joined by Dr. Thomas S. Kidd. He's a research professor of church history at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he's a senior fellow at Baylor's Institute for Studies of Religion. Dr. Kidd is joining us today uh, on the heels of the release of his new book, Thomas Jefferson, Biography of Flesh and Spirit. What is the most important lesson on ethics you learned from your study of Jefferson? Well, I think that that I, I learned much more about the disjunction between many of Jefferson's stated beliefs and, and the way that he actually lived. And so I suppose the, the lesson there is is that, especially with someone like Jefferson, who is so intellectually sophisticated uh, and, and has you know a cultivated uh, philosophy, that there is only so much that that tells you about the way that someone actually uh, lived and I, and, I, and I don't think that it's probably an acute problem with Jefferson because we know uh, Americans you know, tend at least to know about the Declaration of Independence uh, and at least the implicit ethical philosophy there. Um, but it, it's a, I, I'm sure it's a problem of anyone who has sort of sort of a cultivated systemic uh, philosophical system that that doesn't necessarily tell you everything that you need to know about the way that this person actually lived. Mm. So obviously the ethical quandary that comes to mind with Jefferson, probably for most people first is slavery. So I think maybe his first, I'm, by the way, I'm going to say a bunch of Jefferson things that I think are true throughout this interview. And you're going to check me if, if any of them are wrong. <laughs> okay. I believe one of Jefferson's first acts as a member of the legislature in Virginia, if not his first act was to introduce a bill to abolish slavery in the state of Virginia. Right. Yet, of course, his his relationship with slavery was very complex. Could you, could you talk to us about this? Yeah, I mean, it, there's there's definitely some confusion about what he actually introduced and and when and and what he he planned to do. But um, Jefferson in the 1780s is is pretty clear, uh, and this is fairly early in his political career that uh, that slavery is immoral. Uh, and that, I mean, it, he says in notes on the state of Virginia, which is the only full length book he ever published, that uh, he even thinks that slavery may elicit the judgment of God on America. It's, it's so bad, uh, which is kind of a strange thing for Jefferson to say in the context of the rest of his career and religious beliefs. But, but um, he, he's clear that slavery is immoral, uh, that it's bad for whites and blacks. Um, obviously, for the people enslaved, it's bad, and and uh, and so they, he, from early on, has this idea that um, if political sentiment would allow for it in America and in Virginia, that uh, some kind of program of gradual emancipation would be uh, the way to go. Um, but Jefferson is also convinced that if you if you free the slaves, that you you just simply have to get the freed slaves out of the state and and out of uh, the, the country, um, and that if you have some kind of rash program of emancipation that happens all at once, that it's likely going to lead to a genocidal race war between uh, whites and blacks and the, the you know, white owners and the former slaves. 
And so he he basically set such a high standard of, of what kind of political conditions that you would need to have emancipation that he really does ends up doing very little about uh, emancipation him, himself, either politically or uh, personally. Now, as, as president, it is true that he, he uh, signs off on the, the ban on future uh, slave imports into the United States, and that, that is a pretty significant move. Uh, but that that's also uh, about all that he uh, really actually does with regard to limiting slavery in America or in Virginia. I believe, again, this is an, an Austin Jefferson fact that I need to get approval on from you, that the man promised his wife on her deathbed that he would not again marry. How did that promise affect the rest of his life and what ethical dilemmas did this raise? Yes, we, we think that that is almost certainly true, that something like that conversation happened with his, his wife, who died uh, very early um, in, in their marriage, and, and again in the 1780s. Um, and so Jefferson is, is left as a, as a fairly young man, uh, maybe early 40s, um, and uh, he, he has promised not to marry, um, but he, he has ready access to uh, female slaves, most obviously Sally Hemings, um, and she, she comes to live with him um, in Paris when Jefferson is an American diplomat in Paris in the later 1780s. And, uh, you know, most of what we know about his relationship with Sally Hemings is, is inferential and based on uh, uh, oral testimony of, of for instance, uh, their, their children. Um, but uh, we, we think that his relationship with Sally Hemings starts in, in, in Paris um, and that uh, she, she's about 30 years younger than him. So she, she's in her teens and he's in his 40s. Um, but he he has sort of ready access to her, uh, and she's she's most of the time um, as an adult is is a household slave who who lives in close proximity to him, and so um, he, one of their children we we believe it's it, that and he says that he's Thomas Jefferson's child um, sa- says that his mother Sally Hemings became Jefferson's concubine. Um, and other people talk about her as a quote substitute for a wife, um, and and so we we think that they they had some sort of arrangement that is of course in the context of the the coercive nature of slavery, um, where they had a longstanding uh, sexual relationship. I wouldn't want to characterize anything about the emotional intimacy. At all, because we we just simply don't know anything about that, and and we have to remember that she's at the end of the day his his uh, slave. But but uh, that that relationship seems to go on for decades uh, after uh, Martha Jefferson died in the 1780s. So pleased to be joined by Notre Dame professor Philip Munoz. Professor Munoz is the Tocqueville Associate Professor of Political Science and Concurrent Associate Professor of Law at the University of Notre Dame. He is the founding director of Notre Dame Center for Citizenship and Constitutional Government. He's the author of a new book, Religious Liberty and the American Founding, Natural Rights and the Original Meanings of the First Amendment Religion Clauses, which is out now via the University of Chicago Press. What were some commonplace understandings and and uh, 
rules at the time of America's founding when it came to the interaction of church and state. So in other words, what were founders looking at maybe at the state level or in peer countries when they were conceiving of separation of church and state, what they came up with, is that what we would have expected at that time uh, coming out of the United States? Or or how did it differ from really other constitutions at the time? That's a great question, a great way to start. So one of the reasons the founders are so interesting uh, on the subject of religious liberty and separation of church and state is because they were rethinking what those relationships should be, what religious freedom is. Um, Let me just use the state of Virginia. Uh, A lot of people say religious freedom was born in Virginia. I'm not sure if that's quite right. But um, uh, in colonial Virginia, the Anglican church was established. Uh, The head of the Anglican church is uh, the king, and we're having a revolution against the king. So obviously the American Revolution uh, is going to undermine or significantly alter what church-state relations have to be. And uh, so there's... uh, sort of starting from scratch or an opportunity to start from scratch. What should the relationship between church and state be? What is the right of religious liberty? And I mean, one of the reasons we're interested in our founders is because they're our founders and they're, you know, the authors of the constitution. But the other answer, in a way more interesting answer for me is that they are rethinking these things from first principles. Uh, And what you get is um, agreements uh, in some things and disagreements on other things. You get an agreement that, Religious liberty is a natural right and an inalienable natural right to use the founder's language. Therefore, government can't do certain things, has no power to do certain things. Uh, But there are disagreements, too. We we should talk about both the agreements and disagreements. And what were those biggest disagreements among them uh, in terms of separation of church and state? And who won out? Well, yeah, well, I'll I'll start stay within Virginia. Um, uh, Patrick Henry, you know, give me liberty or give me death, Patrick Henry proposed a bill uh, in Virginia, this is in the 17, late 1770s, or I'm sorry, excuse me, in the 1780s, um, uh, after the revolution, to uh, fund uh, education in Virginia by funding religious ministers. So there's a bill to support education by uh, funding religious ministers. Uh, there's no public education to, at the time, so um, education is primarily done through churches. Uh, Patrick Henry, obviously, he's the sponsor of the bill, thought it was proper. George Washington initially supported the bill. But James Madison and Thomas Jefferson were opposed to it. Uh, They thought this sort of funding, uh, direct funding of religious ministers, was improper and violated natural rights principles. So, I mean, these are all patriots, right? They all believed in natural rights. They all believed in political liberty. But there are real disagreements about, you know, can the state fund religion, religious education, uh, or not? And you see those disagreements throughout the states. Um, Massachusetts had different church-state relations than Virginia, which had different church-state relations from South Carolina. So there's a variety of church-state relations in the founding era, and at the same time, an agreement on some fundamental principles. Um, uh, Most clearly, the fundamental principle is that the government has no authority to tell individuals how to worship or prohibit individuals from worshiping in such a way. Government t- can't tell you, you must go to church on Sunday or you can't go to church on Saturday. Um, they agreed on that fundamental principle of freedom of worship, uh, but disagreed on all sorts of practical matters about church and state. I am joined by Dr. Adam Carrington. Dr. Carrington is an associate professor of politics at Hillsdale College, where he's taught since 2014. 
He's a graduate of Baylor University and Ashland University. And Dr. Carrington is a constitutional scholar. This question is so basic, but it's very important because I think it's helpful for people to hear this like a hundred times from a hundred different perspectives. Why is the constitution worth preserving and thinking about? Right. I think so. Not just because it gives me a job. Uh, I would also say that a reason to preserve it and to continue it is that it has a deep insight into human nature, that it understands um, what justice is grounded in the rights and the equal rights in particular of human beings in the consent of the governed. That's why it begins, we the people, but also in the pursuit of liberty. The preamble says that one of the goals is to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. And that not only does it therefore have the right origin of rule, the people, and the right purposes of rule, human liberty, but it has the right framework or structure to make those things happen. Notably, separation of powers, where we have the lawmaking done by the people's representatives, the law execution by a president chosen indirectly by the people, and then the law's application and interpretation by the judiciary, uh, and also a uh, uh, also federalism, the distribution of local and national tasks between state and national governments, and that if you combine the genius of that structure with the right uh, origin of power and the people and the right purpose of government and human liberty, you have something that has stood the test of time because it deserved to stand the test of time. And that I think the tendency is when we think it's not working, it tends to be that we're not working properly with it. Would you change that case at all for why the constitution matters if you were giving it to say like a modern progressive. So I care about three issues. I care about the environment. I care about racial justice and I care about wealth inequality. Why, why should I care about the preservation of the constitution? I would say that first, because the issues that you're worried about or concerned about uh, can be, and I would even say to the degree that they're, uh, uh, that they're, legitimate, uh, should be pursued through the Constitution. That what does it mean to establish justice? What does it mean to have tranquility domestically and security uh, with, with other countries? What does it mean, again, to secure the blessings of liberty? And that uh, we have committed to equality before the law as a result of that. We have committed to this idea that Underneath that is uh, all men are created equal. So even though, yes, America's not perfectly realized that we're not a perfect country, uh, as far as racial justice, for example, we have set in motion a principle that has more and more, I think, moved toward that goal. Um, the environment as well, or wealth inequality, I think those are instances where uh, we can debate the justice around the margins of those things, but that uh, they're not antithetical to the Constitution either. And in addition to that, we have, if you really do believe that there's a genius to the Constitution and its structure, we have a system 
through which we can pursue those goals through elections, through representatives, and uh, through uh, those kind of bodies. And so uh, you not only have the possibility of pursuing those goals through the Constitution, you have the means to do so as well. Do you think, obviously, you know, immediately proceeding and in the three decades, maybe after 1776, you have a lot of controversy around the nature of the the U.S. Constitution. Am I mischaracterizing this, that then there's kind of like a lull or an acceptance or maybe even a reverence for the Constitution for a quite extended period of time? And then maybe late 20th century to today, we're seeing it become more divisive and more of sort of a lightning rod. The support for the Constitution is split along partisan lines increasingly. Or has it always been you know, a topic of, of really charged debate throughout American history? For most of American history, post-ratification, obviously there's a debate about the Constitution during ratification, but post-ratification, for m- most of American history, you don't really have a debate, Constitution, good or bad. There's always been exceptions to that, but in general, the consensus is not that it's it's bad, but that it's good. And you tend to have debates, therefore, about what it means or debates within it about uh, what should be done or what should not be done under it. Uh, You're right. When you get to the late 19th and early 20th century with the progressive movement, that uh, is really, I would say, the first systemic attack on the Constitution that is overt and frontal. Uh, Maybe you have a little bit of that with secession in the South as well, I should say. But uh, with the progressive movement, you have the idea that that the founders' view of justice, grounded in natural rights, grounded in uh, eternal, immutable principles, was false. They replaced that with an idea of progress and the movement of history. When people today say you're on the wrong or the right side of history, that's a fruition of that. And you also have a critique of the structures as well that I was talking about before, that separation of powers and federalism are bad and we need to move to a kind of modern administrative state bureaucracy that combines all the powers the founders wanted to separate. So both on the ends and the means, that critique is the first major one. And I think that uh, the progressive movement gives way to the new left in the 1960s and only ups the ante on that, kind of deepens the critique and deepens the critique of our principles and our system. And I think you do see, maybe not a perfect line separating left and right on this, but you certainly have, I think, a much higher percentage of the political left, for example, adopting that progressive and new left critique and much more likely on the right, although there are some even people on the right who want to say that America isn't good, but still the much higher percentage on the right is to say this is a good thing that we need to restore and and preserve. So it has become more partisan, I would say, than in the past, even if that isn't a perfect line to draw. 